in a sort of guaranteed way, as if, you know, a friend or a lover says, hey, meet me such and such a place on Sunday. You can trust that I'll be there. And there are thin places in Scripture that are particularly revealing. Like, if all of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation uh, represents a window through which we look in and see the heart of God and, and, and see the, the, the revelation of God's work in human history, there are certain Scriptures that seem to, be, seem to have less, less smudges on the window where, where we can see a little bit more clearly. And John 17, I would argue, and if you've been through part of this series, I think you know, seems to be one of those windows that's a little clearer than the others. We get to to look into the heart of Jesus and hear him praying, hear him in this moment of intimacy and vulnerability. And for the past few weeks, we've been looking in that window at John 17, and I've tried to keep it fresh by reading in different translations and doing different things to help us hear the prayer freshly. This evening, I want to invite you to do something a little different. I want to invite you to do this. Take your shoes off, because we're on holy ground. Remember, Moses goes to the burning bush. God says, you better take your shoes off. This is a special place. And if you're comfortable with this, I, I want to invite you to close your eyes and to feel the cool ground on your feet. And to realize that you're on holy ground. And I want you to hear the word of the Lord. The Lord of heaven and earth. I want you to hear the one who created all things praying to his father. Praying for his father's aid to help him accomplish his mission. To hear him pray for his disciples, for you and for me. To hear him pray for the world. And I encourage you to listen to your heart cry inside you, Father, hear his prayer. And I'll let you know, I'm going to read just a portion of the scripture, and I'm going to read it through three times. And I invite you just to receive it three times in a row. Let it wash over you, similar to if you've ever done Lectio Divina. I'm not going to walk through all those steps, but just receive verses 11 through 23. Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me. And I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They're not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they themselves may also be sanctified in truth. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, 
so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. I and them, and you and me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me, and loved them, even as you have loved me. Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you've given me. And I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they're not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They're not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they themselves may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. I and them, you and me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Father, hear his prayer. Help us to hear this prayer with fresh ears, with fresh perspective, to be filled with hope and encouragement that the Son has prayed these things to the Father for us. And help us to find our voice in praying these things, not only for ourselves, but for the church that will come after us. Amen. You could put your shoes on if you want to. It's a little cooler without them, isn't it? But uh, I know um, I have genetically stinky feet, so if you're self-conscious about that, go ahead and put them on. <laughs> well, this is the fourth week in the prayer of Jesus, the series in the prayer of Jesus. And uh, in week one, 
we heard Jesus pray that the Father would help him be glorified, glorified in obedience so that he would be able to bring salvation, which equals eternal life, to all who would know the Father through the glorified Jesus. And we found ourselves, I think, at the end of that message saying, yeah, Father, hear his prayer. We want that. We need that in our life. And in week two, we were encouraged to hear how Jesus prays for us, uh, we who are, are weak and fickle and often failing disciples. He chooses to see his disciples with the glass half full, and he finds ways to encourage us, and then he asks that the Father would keep us in his name, in his family, in his protection, in his covering grace, kept in the Father's name until the very end of the age. And we said, yeah, that sounds like a good deal. Father, hear his prayer. We, we really want that to be so. And last week, we listened to Jesus pray for the mission of the church, specifically praying about seven gifts that will enable us to be witnesses of Jesus to the world. And it was like, yes, I need those seven things. Father, hear his prayer. We need all the help we can get. Well, this evening, we come to a section in John 17 that is perhaps the most popular theme of the whole prayer, at least the most popular in the last couple hundred years in church history. And it's the section on unity, verses 20 through 23. That they may be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Now, I, I think there's an inherent longing in human beings for unity. In times of plenty, especially, in times of peace, there's a sense that we ought to be unified, a feeling that it ought to be so, almost as if a distant human memory, a, a, a recalling of a prototypical normal, a genetic memory uh, that we have for community and right-relatedness. Whether you're part of a church or not, sometimes even it happens better outside of churches, people kind of have this sense that we should be together on things. And scripture, I would say, supports that idea, both by a positive example, before, before the fall of humanity, you've got Adam and Eve and all they represent in community with each other, in community with creation, in community with the creator. Things are pretty good. And then you also have an example of what was broken when they rebelled against God. And of course, what was broken, but relationships and unity. Okay, so I think that there's this, this inherent kind of leaning that we have. We, we have a sense, I think, as humans, when we're at our best, that we ought to be on the same page, that it would be better if we were unified. But, but, but let's read the newspaper, right? Or look at the news. There's also this blatant reality that human beings tend to act tribal. And when there's scarcity or war or a threat to our way of life, humans are masters at finding strength through demonizing anyone who's not like us. Whether that's through gender or class or education or race or any other criteria, segregation is how we tend to deal with our insecurities about our place in the world. That ring true for any of your experiences? Now, do we see places in the world where there is unity happening very well? 
Well, I, I think we definitely see some valiant efforts. And let me just give you one example of uh, of a valiant effort, uh, uh, of even external unity. As you know, or most of you know, I served for seven years in the U.S. Coast Guard, and if you ever want an interesting sociological experiment, put 56 people on a steel can and put them out in the ocean and say, live together for a month or two months or three months. Is this crazy talk? So, uh, not only do they have to live together, but they have to, to figure out how to work together to run a multi-million dollar piece of equipment, to function as a team, to do complex activities like search and rescue and environmental protection and law enforcement and national security. Okay, so that sounds easy. How do we accomplish this unity? So on my first cutter, I was 19 years old, out of boot camp, I get to Seattle, Washington, and it was a 180-foot buoy tender. There was over 50, I think there's 58 men and women on this boat. There were African-Americans, and Caucasians, and Asians, and Hispanics, and uh, a Pacific Islander as well. We had people from the West Coast, and the East Coast, and the South, and the islands. We didn't have a Midwesterner on this particular crew. I guess we weren't diverse enough. Um, we had people from 18 years old to mid-40s. Various specialties from mechanics to gunner's mates to cooks and navigators and damage control specialists and yada, 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 okay? So people of different skill sets. And all that diversity, and yet we were still able to perform incredibly complex operations relatively safely, although not always. But did we really achieve unity? Is that what unity is? I'll say this. It was a functional unity. And we did, at, for specific lengths of time and for specific operations, we worked really well together. But how was that unity on a Coast Guard ship built and maintained? It was through a rigid system of class and segregation. I'm not being critical. That's just how it works in the military, and in a lot of other sectors in life. Officers hold a certain authority, and they're segregated from the rest of the crew through a certain uniform, through the places that they sleep. They sleep in the aft part of the ship. All the crew is way up forward, where it rocks like this when you're in a storm. They are segregated through what jobs they do. They don't clean bilges, newsflash, okay. They eat in what's called a wardroom a separate fancy dining room that the table is set and prepared and then cleaned up by junior enlisted people. Under them are the senior enlisted people, the chiefs. They also have a separate birthing area in the middle of the ship, a separate dining room, and they too are served by junior enlisted people. And then in the junior enlisted, E6 and below, there's two classes among those groups as well. Everyone knows their place, and it's through discipline and knowing your role and performing your duty that things get done. It's a functional unity. And sometimes, of course, friendships are formed. But make no mistake, when that ship pulls into home port, not just a port of call, when it pulls into home port after 35, 40, 60 days being gone, like roaches, you just scatter. In fact, it's illegal for an officer to have a social relationship with an enlisted person. Fraternization happens. You see what I'm saying? It's, this unity is functional, but it's built on very rigid segregation. And so while there's a functional unity, 
it's not biblical unity. It's not right relatedness for the long-term life. And let's, let's just pause a minute after that example and reframe what we're looking at here. John 17, this passage we're looking at, is not a teaching, although there's plenty to learn from it. And it's not a typical narrative, although it fits in a narrative framework. It's part of the larger story of Jesus. And it's not poetry, although there are some poetic elements in it. But what John 17 is, unequivocally, is a prayer. That's the genre we're looking at. And when we pray prayers that ask God for things, it's because we are unable to bring about the things that we're asking for in our own strength. Does that make sense? So, my mailbox is actually, I don't know why I use this example, my mailbox is like attached to my house, but let's pretend I had one down the walkway. If my legs and my body worked well, and I wanted to go get the mail, I don't typically ask, Lord, help me to get the mail. I can do that in my own strength. Now, I might pray, thank you that I'm able to get the mail in my own strength. I might even pray, help there to be good things in the mail, <laughs> you know, that kind of stuff. But you don't typically ask God to help you do things you can already do. It's kind of your sphere of influence. And if you're thinking about levitating to the mailbox, you would do well to pray about that because that's probably the only way you're going to get there. To levitate. I don't know if God will answer that prayer, but that's what you would need to do. Now, think about this. Jesus is God in the flesh, part of the eternal trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He knows his church, and it is telling that Jesus does not command us. Church, walk in unity. He prays that the Father would help us walk in unity. That, that's significant. He's praying about it because it's not something you can just do. And it's good news. First, it's good news that Jesus doesn't ask the impossible of us. <sighs> Life's hard enough without that. Okay? He doesn't ask the impossible of us. And it's, it's also good news that he asks the impossible for us from the Father. Isn't that good news? That, that the Son of the Trinity is interceding on behalf of us, that the Father would give us grace to walk in unity, to do something that because of, because of our own sinfulness, because of the ways we've been broken, because of the ways we've been jaded, because of the ways that we are tribal, and that's been generations, generations, generations made us weary of people that aren't like us, or they don't see the same, it, it makes unity almost impossible without the work of God. Father, hear his prayer. In fact, you can say that. Go ahead. Father, hear his prayer. I, I mean, yeah, I need him to do this. <laughs> so, so is that it? Like, what now? Is there anything we can do? How does the Father answer this prayer? Well, the first thing to point out is that Jesus is praying that the church be in unity, not that the world be in unity. And it's not because Jesus doesn't care about the world. It's that he knows that it's true unity is impossible if people are not participating in the life of God. All right? So Dallas Willard wrote, uh, and I've quoted this a hundred times, but uh, in, the, in, the, in response to the question, uh, can't we all just get along, Dallas Willard writes, No. <laughs> We have to become the type of people 
who can get along. That's, that's what the Father does in this. He, he makes his people, who like the song that we sang, it was so great. Uh, I don't remember how it goes, but the, 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 basically the idea was like, um, help me not to be worried so much about what people think of me or being right or being understood. You know, those, are, those are things that really trip us up in, in walking in unity together. The type of people who truly can get along in biblical unity are enabled to do so by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the very life of God inside of them. Now, we've been conditioned to, 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 to live in fear and selfishness as an aid to survive in a fallen world. And, and a lot of times, that, frankly, that serves us pretty well in a fallen world. Uh, we need the power of the Spirit to undo what feels primal and natural in how we live in a competitive world. A world where the majority of people do not recognize the Father as good, let alone as a good provider. And who does the Spirit fill with this kind of life? Well, those who are baptized into the life of Jesus and his church. In fact, the church being unified is part of Jesus' mission to the world. He prays that the church be unified by the Father so that the world would come to know that the Father sent the Son and then they can believe in him. Now, it's tempting to say, I know, I know some of you pragmatists are saying, okay, so wait a minute. If the world sees the church unified, then they'll believe that the Father sent the Son, and then they'll be saved. I know. Let's all get together and be unified externally, and then they'll see, and then, right? That's the way Americans do stuff. Let's get to work trying to concoct unity. But you can see the problem with this from the get-go. It quickly becomes a functional unity, like my illustration on the ship. The church can do some great things together, but that doesn't mean we are walking in the Spirit necessarily. There are lots of ways to fail at trying to concoct unity, but the two most common ones are these. First, let's, let's all, all the different churches, let's minimize our differences by seeking the least common denominator. And it's true that part of the gospel is submitting to one another, but not at the expense of the apostolic faith. Creation, sin, incarnation of Jesus, atoning, mysterious atoning death on the cross, how that works, nobody is too sure, but it's part of the faith. And a bodily resurrection, these things are core tenets of the Christian faith. Christianity is a lot more than those things, but it's not less than those things. And so sometimes we've been tempted throughout the years as, as church around the world to, to kind of, well, yeah, you don't really believe Jesus became flesh or was resurrected? Well, you know, let's just forget it, but that's just a silly doctrine. Let's just have potlucks together. Well, that, that's, not, that's not following the apostolic faith, and there's no power in a gospel that's not apostolic. There's no power in a gospel that's not true to Scripture. And so the least common denominator way is not, is not the answer to unity. The second way people have tried to unify uh, the church is through organizational structures. 
And if you play this one out, though, you could conceivably have, this is crazy, right? But like you could conceivably have every Christian in the world today, like boom, all of a sudden it comes out tomorrow in the news or whatever, however God, and hey, guess what? We're all one denomination, South Americans, North Americans, Africans, uh, Chinese Christian cell movements, all, we're all one denomination, and we go back to some ancient form, whatever that is, uh, and we could all agree on one style of worship and have a common pope and, or president or bishop or whatever you want to call this person, and we could adopt one creed and one way of interpreting scripture, but none of those outward structures would be a guarantee of biblical unity. In fact, what would probably happen if I were in charge is it would just mask a pride. Look what we did. We're all one. We're all one structure. <laughs> okay, Chris, well, how are we going to be unified then? Because those are pretty, uh, those are kind of the ways I was leaning. What if, what if we already are unified? What if we already are in unity? Here's what I mean. Jesus prays in verse 22 that he has given us the glory that the Father has given him. Does that mean that we glow? Like, I don't see a halo on any of you. Um, what does that mean, the glory? Well, we've learned already that the glory of Jesus is that he is the personal manifestation of the living God. That's his glory. And then Jesus died and rose and ascended. So his glory ascended. And then he sent someone, didn't he? The Holy Spirit, who is now his manifestation. And that spirit in, in a believer is the glory that the Father gave the Son, Son gives to us. That's the glory. And that means that we are able to be in unity and in many ways already are in unity. One of the best places to go for a look at the unity of church is Paul's letter to the Ephesians. In fact, um, I'm going to disappoint some of you because this is a, a sermon about a prayer, so I'm not going to get into how to 10 steps to be in unity. But I did preach through Ephesians once. It's on our website, chapter 4. You want to look at that, the first six verses. There's some great steps for how to actually walk some of this out. So pragmatists, go to, go to that. Okay. But if you look at Ephesians, um, and Paul is writing this letter to the Ephesian church after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. It's six chapters long. In the first three chapters of that letter, Paul gives one command. Paul <laughs> gives one command. If you know Paul, that's like, whoa, what, was he like sleeping? Or what? He's usually like commanding lots of stuff. First three chapters, he gives one command. Anyone remember what that is? It starts with an R. It's all through the Psalms. Opposite of forget. Remember, yes, remember. Before he gets to any other of the commands, he spends three chapters telling people to remember what? Well, here's some of the things distilled from Ephesians. Remember that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing, chosen us before the foundation of the world, predestined us to adoption as sons and daughters, redeemed us through the blood of Jesus. He has forgiven us, made known to us the mystery of his will, given us the Holy Spirit, raised Jesus from the dead, loved us, made us alive together with Christ, created us for good work, made us united in Christ through the cross. And Paul says that in Christ, we are chosen 
God's own inheritance, Christ's body, once dead but made alive together in Christ, God's workmanship, new creations of God's household. You are a living temple, a dwelling place for the living God. We are the manifold wisdom of God revealed. Pause there for a minute. Paul writes that the church is crazy, is the manifold. That means all. I always think exhaust manifold, but it means everything, right? The, the church is the manifold, the whole wisdom of God put it in a people on display, he says, for all the heavenly people. Like the angels are like, that's it, God? That's all your wisdom in those people? Isn't that crazy how, how highly he thinks of the church? And he, he closes with, you are sons and daughters of the living God. It is only after reminding us of all that God has done and all that you are in Christ that he then commands the church. And this is his second command in the whole letter. Walk or live in unity. Another way of saying that is live out the life that is already yours because of what Jesus has done. You are unified through my cross you have the spirit alive inside who has broken down all the arbitrary barriers of race and gender and class and national identity and political allegiance. I was thinking about a stupid example because next week Corey and I are going to celebrate our 20th anniversary going to Costa Rica. I'm excited to see monkeys and sloths and stuff. And so I was thinking about jungles. And it was as if, it's as if Jesus wanted his church to go through an impossibly thick jungle full of mountains and predators and big spiders. And Paul is saying, look, Jesus has cleared the path with the machete of grace. He's built trails and he's cleared the path. He's built trails of hope and he's built bridges over ravines of death. He's marked the trail as clear and he's even not allowed spiders to build webs over the path. It's pretty cool. Now, now that he's done all of this, huh, walk on this path of unity. I've cleared it for you. It is who you are. But that's not all. You need to hear this part. If Jesus had cleared the path for us and said, huh, go get them, church. I did my part. Now you do yours. That would be better than it has to be. But it would also be deism. And that's the idea that we have a God who has intervened into our world, got it spinning, goes around the sun, you guys handle it from here, I did my part. That's deism. And that's not, that's not what the Bible says about God. That's certainly not what the Bible says about Jesus who reveals God to us. The Jesus we worship and the Jesus revealed throughout the early church is the Jesus who is with us in spirit. The Jesus who changes our character. And he continues to do this when we are the people of word and sacrament. It isn't character building or unity by osmosis. Like, like it just comes in passively. It's a gift that we come and receive when we submit ourselves to his word, when we fill our hearts and our heads with the truth of God in song, in scripture, in prayer, and practicing hospitality. I just got to say, you guys, I don't know if you knew this, how fortunate you are to have uh, four or five lay-led worship teams and the, the people that 
we, we, when we plan the songs and when these worship team leaders plan the songs, they're looking at the sermon text and they're finding out what are the themes and they're trying to pick songs that inform just as much as they are fun to sing and, and give us joy in our hearts. And because we recognize that everything we do, whether they're words sung or prayed or listened to in a sermon, it, it all forms our character and shapes us. It's the life that is formed in us when we practice service and participate in sacrament, submit to his word, practice hospitality. So there's the spirit, and there's participating and practicing in ways that the spirit shapes us. And third, there are the people that the Father gives us both to encourage us and to sharpen us. And of course, some of those people are historic saints, like St. Paul, Paul who wrote all those letters in the Bible, the guy was big on unity. And as sharp as he could be with people um, who are blatantly living lives away from God, he was very big on keeping the church together. And there's other people that we read who have gone on before us who are, who are big on unity that we can take encouragement from, an example from. There's people in, in our contemporary world, both uh, you know, large figures um, who are working in a healthy biblical way for unity, and there's people in our own congregation. Uh, as a lead team, we often do a, a strengths finder inventory. It's one of the ways that we figure out kind of, hey, who has God brought to the table? And um, it's never ceased to amaze me how at least two of the six people on our lead team are always... the includer. That's one of their top strengths. And so we have, you know, we have people who are uh, strategists and people who are connectors and people who are a lot of achievers, all these teachers and stuff like that. But like, we have people who are, who are, who are uh, includers, who are connectors, who, who want to build the unity and, and build commonality. These people are among us and, and they're gifts to the church for building unity. And there's the fact that over the past few years, we've joined with several other churches for worship on Memorial Day weekend. Not under the facade that getting together once a year is somehow biblical unity. It sounds like functional unity to me. But it's an outward expression of the unity that is going on among us throughout the year. I think I've mentioned this before, but just to remind you, 10 months a year, the pastors and some other key leaders from these churches meet together for prayer. We meet together for mutual understanding and sharing of life together. And currently there are covenanters and Baptists and Presbyterians and free churches and an Anglican church and non-denominational Hispanic churches. And we all get together and we span different ethnicities and social classes and educational levels and location in the county and economic levels. Our, our, not only as individuals, but our churches are just different. The only caveat is that we have to be about Jesus and we hold to his word to be the only perfect rule for faith and practice. And it's within that shared unity that the son's prayer to the father is becoming a reality in just a little microcosm. And the unity that we share with Fountain Community Church, the, the church that owns this building that we get to, to use and to worship in and to eat in and to train our children in, that, that, is, that is abnormal. Did you know that? Like as a church planting coach, I, I coach other church planters sometimes, and I, you know, learn when I can about church planting movements and how it all works. You know, 
it's like really inadvisable to cohabitate in a church building, especially with two different denominations, especially two different denominations that are trying to reach a similar community. Like it's just, you don't do that. It never works. It always blows up in your face. We're going on nine years here. And I see that we're just growing closer together. In fact, uh, this kind of warms my heart. Um, on Thursday, Tuesday evening, Tuesday evening we were here. Um, I grilled a bunch of burgers and people brought side dishes. And our lead team, and if there were spouses and kids involved, the lead team all came. And we had dinner with Fountain Community Church's leaders and, and their families. And there was no agenda. We just, the only thing is we had to sit at different tables than, than our own people. And just got to, I just got to know people. And, and, and to, to break down any barriers or stereotypes that we might have, uh, because yeah, our worship styles are different, our preaching styles are different, our theology is a little different, but you know what? Jesus is the same. And we all love other people. And we all love to eat. And there's just so much more that we are, we are unified on than we are different. These are small steps that reflect a larger reality. And the reality is that the Father has heard the prayer of the Son, that we are one church and we're invited to believe it and to live it out. So I want to close in a prayer just responding to this. So join me. Thank you, Father, for making us one. Now give us grace to extend grace to one another in all our differences and quirks in our various styles and pet peeves. Help us to major on the majors of the faith unwaveringly and to help us to let go of the things we may like but are of little significance to you or the gospel. Father, hear his prayer that we may so be one that the world would believe that you sent the Son because you love the world that much. Amen.